Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Start Me Up podcast, part of the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network in association with Mother She Wrote Media. I'm your host, Kimberly Johnson in D.C. Today, my guest is author Carrie Blakinger. She's an investigative reporter based in Texas. She covers criminal justice and injustice for the Marshall Project, and she writes Inside Out, a regular column published in collaboration with NBC News. Her book, Corrections and Inc., is a must read, and I mean that. It's so good. It chronicles her time in prison. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what she does now and how she investigates prisons. But before we get into it, the Start Me Up podcast is independent, supported by listeners, and it's woman run. A great big thank you to everybody who supports the show. If you enjoy today's podcast, visit patreon.com slash start me up. Check out all the tiers. I do include a tier with a much shorter intro and no ads. You can hear the free shows on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and they're followed up by What's Up, a show just for patrons where I talk about anything that comes to mind. It's a little more personal, kind of like my online diary. Visit patreon.com slash start me up and don't forget you can find start me up on itunes stitcher and wherever podcasts are found now please enjoy my conversation with carrie blakinger welcome to the show carrie hey thanks for having me (laughs) oh my god your book your book is so good it's a corrections and ink i'm just putting it out there right now i said it in the intro everybody needs to get this book now we're gonna obviously talk about it um it's so fascinating but I just want to say that it's a very heavy subject, but the way that you write it, it's, I I don't want to say that it's light because it's not light, but it's your writing. You have this really um, unbelievable way of of communicating that feels light, even though it's a really heavy subject. And I don't know how else to say it. I've been trying to come up with the adjectives, but all I could say is read this book. It's so good. I absolutely loved it. And I'm so grateful you're here. Um, so really, before we, or no, let's just start. Let's just jump into it. So first off, you were a promising competitive ice skater, and you grappled with an eating disorder. Um, you went into drugs, prostitution, homelessness, and then prison. Your book starts off with you being arrested with a Tupperware container of heroin during your senior year of college, and then you, you go to prison. So this was your first time being left, locked up. What did you think prison would be like before you were incarcerated? I think in some ways I just, I didn't think about it. Like I didn't sort of really think through like the day to day of what that would be like. I mean, I had, I mean, part of that was that I had grown up in, you know, I I had enjoyed a lot of privilege growing up, like, you know, race privilege, class privilege. Mm -hmm. um, And I don't think I really, I probably didn't know um, growing up, I probably didn't know anyone who'd ever been incarcerated, maybe not even arrested. Um, By the time I did end up, you know, getting arrested. I, I obviously did know other people from drug circles that had, you know, done time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I think the truth of it is, is that the system is confusing and it isn't made for you to understand it. Like, I think that part of the way the system works, you know, it, you know, it almost benefits by having people not understand it. Because I think if people really understood so many aspects of the legal system, of the prison system, of criminal justice generally, they'd be a lot more outraged. Wow. Um, so you, you stopped doing drugs when you were in prison. And I think a lot of people think that when someone goes to prison, oh, well, they just get clean and they stay sober. Is that true? That is so not true. And, you know, it's... It, it, it's such a problematic misconception in some ways. So when I was in prison, I could get heroin delivered to my bedside if I wanted, um, complete with a needle. Um, and that was actually not one of the more um, sort of drug-drenched prisons. Um, some of the prisons that I cover now as a reporter, um, 
there's just there's just so so many drugs in some of these places. Wow. Um, you know, there there in some cases it is easier to get drugs in prison than on the street. I know wow. um, a not small number of people who did not do drugs before prison and then you know went to prison and started doing drugs. Really. Wow. And yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I knew a few from when I did time, but. Um, men's prisons also tend to have more drugs than women's. So a lot of the people I'm reporting on now um, are, you know, obviously there's more men who are incarcerated. So I end up dealing with more men than women. And, I'm, you know, it seems that there's right. so many more drugs in some of their facilities. Um, and I mean, there's reasons for that, but that's, you know, a whole, yeah. probably a whole other can of worms. But, you know, the, I think the problem is that um, when, when people think of jail and prison it is so common that people will say to me like oh well you know at least if you lock this person up they will stop doing drugs mm -hmm. and um that's that that can happen in some instances there are people that you know that's the pause they needed or whatever and they stop doing drugs but it, it even when it works it's pretty much taking what is like literally just the worst tool available yeah, right. <laughs> to solve this problem you know um and most of the time it it's a tool that doesn't work and can often accomplish the opposite at the same time as um, sort of disconnecting someone from their community and, you know, creating additional trauma and taking away many of the, you know, supports and resources that people would need to be more successful in the community. Now, I want to ask you a quick question here. As far as drugs coming in, how is it that it comes in and, and is it is it because the the guards and the people running the prison are they just they don't care are they looking the other way or is it getting past them and they don't know it um so combination of things and it depends a little bit on the facility um in in a lot of the prisons i cover you know it's the guards that are bringing them in wow you know they're they're getting paid often well to get drugs in mm -hmm. um in some places it's been a sort of ongoing thing that you know people would try to get drugs in through the mail um that's kind of limited and not the most common route mm -hmm. in a lot of facilities um and then there's some places that do you know get it through drone drops um wow. there's some <laughs> yeah there's some you know low security facilities where people have a little more freedom of movement so if someone you know drops a drone load of you know cell phones and drugs inside the fence or on top of the roof of a building then someone can go retrieve it and um then they don't have to pay right. guards to, to get that done wow okay so uh let's back up how did you end up in prison in the first place so growing up i was a competitive figure skater i skated pairs which is where you know, the guy throws you around and looks all dangerous and shit. <laughs> and um, that was like my whole life. Mm -hmm. I I was um, I was leaving school at like 10 or 11 every day and I would go to the rink to train until like five or six. Um, and, you know, we were good. We competed at nationals twice in 2000 and 2001. Um, but then when he decided to branch out and find another pair partner, I kind of fell apart. And at that point, I had already been struggling with some pretty serious eating disorders and um, depression at times, suicidal depression. Um, and then when, you know, when he decided to um, branch off, I realized that I, you know, after a few weeks, I hadn't found another partner. There were no prospects on the horizon. And then weeks turned into months. And, you know, this is a sport where there are so many more women than men that like he could find another partner immediately, but for me, it could be, mm. you know, weeks or months or never. Mm -hmm. And this is also a sport where, you know, you, you're being told that you're getting too old for, you know, wow. basically as, as young as you can remember. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I, I fell apart and I ended up starting, I, I got into drugs that summer and um and quickly like i mm -hmm. think i smoked pot once and then maybe did ecstasy and went sort of immediately to heroin wow. um yeah i was wow. in i mean i was in a very self-destructive place like not quite suicidal enough to you know i don't know like ac actually kill myself but mm -hmm. just close enough to be doing the most dangerous yeah, things right. i could be doing without um you know i don't know without, without really having a conviction to you know just end it mm -hmm. um 
and so that sort of you know that was sort of my life for the next nine years off and on like I got sober at times um briefly and I went I you know enrolled in college while I was still getting high and you know I was homeless some I was doing sex work some um you know, I, it was sort of all over the place. Um, but that was what the next nine years looked like. And then in, um, 2010, when I was at, when I was about to graduate from, um, Cornell, I got arrested with a Tupperware, a small Tupperware container of heroin. And I ended up, you know, this is how I landed in jail and eventually prison. You know, you wrote about your eating disorder, and I I have had my own experiences with eating disorders. And, you know, I, I don't ever want to try to compare one to the other. I just, you know, I used to be an actress. And so for me, because I'm six feet tall, I have very big bones, like literally big bones. I don't have a small frame. I felt in Hollywood, I felt, you know, huge. And so there was this one woman who said to me, in fact, she, she was on a very popular television show basically because I helped her meet the casting director. But beside that, uh, she, told, <laughs> she told me at the time that I was never going to be hired because, or, or she said that I had to lose 20 pounds if I wanted to be hired, that I was never going to be considered sexy. And at the time I was quite slender and in fact probably resembled like Brooke Shields body when she was on suddenly Susan. Um, I just had boobs and, you know, but outside of that, Brooke and I were not altogether that different because she's also six feet tall. But I heard that and I took it to heart and I started I started experiencing bulimia. But it wasn't like a binge and purge. You were explaining in your book and I'm just sidetracking this a little just because it's so interesting yeah. to me. But, you know, I mean, I wasn't and it, that doesn't mean I think I'm better. I don't think I'm like a better bulimic than anyone. But for me, what it was about was I, I was always in control of what I ate because I lived alone. But on the rare occasion that I would either go to somebody's house or, you know, go to a restaurant, it was almost impossible for me not to eat that food because I wanted it so much. And then I would get rid of it. But it, I didn't go to the store and buy tons of food and binge and throw up. That was not my M.O. My M.O. was just strictly like in some cases you hear people have eating disorders and it's because they feel out of control in their lives and food is something they control. For me, it was all about weight. I just wanted to be thin. And so my question for you was, you know, I had read in some of these uh instances where you went and bought ice cream and all this and you even stole ice cream when you couldn't afford food and you would binge and you would get sick and it would make you feel so horrible and you would cry and I mean I, I totally understood and it was it was difficult to read but at the same time it was so fascinating and I'm wondering do you, did you feel that it was, it was you're out of control is that where it came from or can you pinpoint it um you know it's interesting I think in the moment, it definitely felt like it was um, out of control, but it was also planned. You mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. I when I was when I was binging, like I had to be planning it in a time that I could then throw up afterwards. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like completely out of control. And I think it wasn't until sort of years later that I started realizing how how much more. Um, how, how much more like control in general and, and a desire for agency um, had, had played a role in how that, in, in how that eating disorder developed to begin with. Um, mm. Because I found like sort of, you know, years later, even when I was definitely not in the throes of an eating disorder anymore, um, I would sometimes when really stressed out, like my, my sort of instinct would just be like, it would, you know, my like my it would, my instinct would be like, okay, I should just not eat for a day. Like I would just you know this is the this is how I would sort of re regain control. Yeah, if I was depressed yeah. or whatever. Like this is my instinct, and go, I, yeah. I you know I wasn't necessarily acting on it, but I would notice more over time that um, I was sort of I guess as I got further away from it, more aware and more conscious that that had ever been an instinct or a way that I was trying to self-soothe because at the time as it was occurring, it was just sort of thing. It was like instinctive and I wasn't really thinking through like, geez, when I'm right. depressed or incredibly stressed out, my 
um, my instinct is to take control of, of this situation by, you know, not eating. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't think I sort of put that all together until no, but later. I, yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, that's, I think, you know, while I was in the throes of it, I, I think I always realized why I was doing it. And, it, you know, I, I knew I had friends who did it. And, you know, it was funny because I had stopped doing it. I think I stopped in 1999 I, or I think it was, yeah, it was like 1999. I think I did it for about two and a half years and it was very sporadic. It wasn't something I did all the time, but um, I had a friend who described herself uh, as a bulimorexic and so she would starve herself and she would be bulimic. And then I had, uh, yeah, yeah, I had, and she was also an alcoholic. So that was fun. But um, I had another friend who right after 9-11, you know, she, again, like me, she would do it periodically, but for her, it was about like she did it after 9/11 because I think she went and got a bunch of frozen yogurt and binged on that and got rid of it and it was it was literally out of feeling out of control. She felt out of control because of what happened to the right. country and so she you know fills herself up and it, yeah and it's like so weird because I used to be so fascinated and inter- go to these chat rooms with people who would have eating disorders and I mean my I always felt like mine mine was a little different. But at the same time, again, it's not about judging them. It's just about observing the differences and why people choose to do it. So, And then the, the next question I have for you on that subject was, okay, so we talked about the eating disorder. The, what got you to the drugs? So, I mean, like I sort of said before, um, that, I mean, that, was, that happened when skating fell apart. Um, and I mean, part of that was about being incredibly self-destructive. I think that, you know, part of that was also that, um, you know, I clearly had some sort of um, obsessive self-harm right. tendencies because I yeah. think that's kind of what an eating disorder is in yes. a lot of ways is obsessive self-harm, right? Yes. But um, because of skating, I could not engage in drugs or drinking um, because the skating was very important to me. And obviously, you know, you can't eat – like even if you're, mm-hmm. you know, smoking pot at night or something, you know, it still is going to have an impact on your ability to skate mm-hmm. aside from the issue of drug tests at competitions and things. Mm-hmm. Um, so like drugs was really sort of not on the table. And honestly, you know, when you're in, in competitive figure skating as a 16 year old, you don't know where to get drugs anyway. Right, yeah. um, so that had really not sort of been even a thing I seriously considered um until skating fell apart and then i had this hole in my life um because skating was um my whole identity it was my whole social circle Mm -hmm. it was everything i envisioned for like my future um i mean i knew there would someday be a future after skating but i couldn't really envision that Mm -hmm. and um i don't know i kind of liken it to um you know if you get divorced and get fired from your job and also from every job forever and that's sort of what it felt like and after that I you know I think I felt like I didn't have a lot to lose in some ways interesting um so you mentioned poor medical care in your book but I think I've seen you posting more on Twitter and TikTok about something that isn't in the book um as much but it has been in the news women's health care so what is women's health care like in prison um, it's, it's, uh, you know, so fucking awful. I, you know, when I, when I got arrested, I, um, you know, after a few days in, da- in jail, I started having my period and I had it for like weeks for like four or five, six wow. weeks. And eventually the nurse was like, okay, you know, you can, we can put you on some birth control to try to regulate your cycle. But since it was a jail, and, you know, it's easier to not have to take a daily medication or something like that. They, um, you know, they were sort of like, hey, the, you know, maybe the shot would be a good idea. Mm-hmm. So I tried that and loved it. It was great. I, you know, actually did not have any period at all for, you know, the next three months. And mm-hmm. then when that wore off and it would have been time for another one, there was a new nurse who said, no, we don't, we're not giving birth control. You're in jail. Like, we're not giving it just to, <sighs> you know, regulate your period or whatever. And I bled um, almost every day for the next six months. Oh my God. And, you know, and they, they're, you know, they're not willing to do anything about that. Um, I, I started drawing, you know, 
drawing blood on my medical request forms and it didn't <laughs> didn't make any difference <laughs> i was oh, like wow illustrating them <laughs> to right. you know show how dire the situation was but the other thing is when that happens like i mean i think part of that is just um when you're at a when you're in a system that is essentially made by men largely for men mm-hmm. um women's health is not a priority and i remember when i got that shot the one time when i came back to the jail afterwards the sergeant like sort of cornered me and demanded to know why i had gone out to get a birth control shot like why i didn't taken out on the transport to get a birth control shot hmm. when i was in jail mm-hmm. um and you know i the the other thing though about when you if you're bleeding for months on end in jail is like you have to then beg for you know, hygiene supplies. Like you have to beg for tampons. You have to beg for pads in the jail that I was in. If you, you actually had no privacy on the toilet. Um, and anyone walking by the hallway in the hallway could see whether that was a GED teacher or a guard or, you know, a line of male inmates going to outside rack. Like they could all just look in these long windows along the cell blocks and, and see into the toilets. So like you'd be, if you're changing a tampon, like your ex might walk by or your ex, you know, your ex's best friend or whatever. It's just, it, it was, um, this sort of added level of shame. And then you put on top of that, you know, aside from the fact that you're begging for tampons, you're, you know, possibly not getting enough sometimes having to you know people would make tampons out of maxi pads mm-hmm. um and you know you're you're dealing with the shame of of having people some people you know watch you change them and then you also have strip searches um in and in when i was in prison they would make you take out your tampon during a strip Ugh. search um which is a very specific kind of humiliating yes. um and you know, the, this is not unique to the places where I did time. Like all of these things I'm describing, they may not all happen at, you know, any given place, but mm-hmm. um, they do happen all over. I mean, I've, I've talked to women who've done time in a lot of different systems. And the thing that I think some of these things have in common is that it's essentially weaponizing women's bodies mm-hmm. as an instrument of like shame to, you know, take away dignity, which is something we see more broadly in the you know free world as we called it that's what we you know call the world outside of prison Hmm. um but i think that you know when i sort of think about what's happening now um with with women's health in general um it seems like this this was all foreseeable i know it seems so surprising to a lot of people when you know roe was overturned but when I think about how we've always been so willing to mm-hmm. weaponize women's bodies to take away their dignity, um, even, you know, I mean, obviously in vulnerable communities, but also behind bars, like it, that wasn't going to stay yeah. restricted to behind bars. Like, of course, that dynamic was going to be repeated in the rest of the world. Yeah. Wow. Well, we have to take a quick break, but we're going to be back after a few. Hey, this is Kimberly. Real quick, if you're not already a patron of the show, please check out patreon.com slash startmeup. You'll see all the different tier options. I would really appreciate it if you check them out and become my patron. You'll have my undying gratitude. Thanks so much. Okay, we are back. Um, all right, so let's uh, let's move on to the next question. Now, you mentioned that race and class, or I should say you mentioned race and class privilege a lot in your book and how those things impacted the time that you did, but you also mentioned a particular change in the law that had a huge impact on how long your sentence was. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So um, I was arrested in New York, which was home to the notoriously draconian Rockefeller drug law. Those were some of the first mandatory minimums in the country. Um, they, you know, they included three strikes or outlaws, mm-hmm. and um, they also included uh, a mandatory minimum as applied to um, drug possession. And if you had, um, you know, if you had more than four ounces of, um, of, you know, heroin, cocaine, like hard drugs, you would get a mandatory minimum. Um, and it was 15 to life um, in, I mean, there were a few iterations of the law, but as of the early 2000s, um, that would have been 15 to life. And they started repealing the laws in 2004 and they finished repealing in 2009 and I got arrested in 2010 Hmm. and the amount that I had gotten arrested with, like under the 
old law would have gotten me 15 to life. But instead, I ended up with, you know, two and a half years. Mm -hmm. And with good time, that meant doing 21 months. Mm -hmm. Um, Under the old law, I would still be in prison and not even eligible for parole yet for another few years. Um, And, you know, I think about this a lot. when, When people say things like that, you know, both parties are the same, you know, voting doesn't matter. Um, Because these are things, you know, these, these sorts of changes happened as in, as the result of major shifts Mm -hmm. in New York state politics. Um, And, you know, (laughs) if some people can, you know, contend that both parties are the same, but like that particular change in law is the difference between, you know, my entire life. Wow. That's insane. I can't even imagine what it must be like for you. I mean, you know, when you talk here, I wish I could get everyone to be reading your book because again, the the picture that you paint, it's so interesting. And I mean, I watched, I do want to ask you real quick. Um, cause the next question I have is about you going to prison. But before I ask you this question, I do want to, just kind of like, you know, there was the series Orange is the New Black, which I know uh, Piper, what's her last name? Kerman. Kerman, thank you. Uh, helped you, recommended your book, and has been a mentor to you. And I just wanted to know, I mean, I absolutely love that series. And I wanted to know, was with your experience, was your, uh, the prison that you went to, was it a, um, it, it seemed to me in Orange is the New Black, I don't know what it was actually called, but it didn't seem like it was a hardcore prison. So what were the differences between where you were and what they showed on television with Orange so is New Black? She, yeah, she was in a federal prison camp, which is okay. the sort of lowest level of prison, and that's in the federal system. And I was in a state prison, and I did most of my time in um, medium to high security okay. um, prisons. Wow. wow. Um, and, you know, I think the – the actual biggest difference is um, is not so much a, about the um, level of the prison, but you know one of the things that you can't really show on a show is how much of prison is just waiting. You know how much of prison is just sort of boredom. Like mm-hmm. sure, there are, there is crazy shit that pops off. Like there yeah. totally is. Um, and most of the crazy things that happen in that show, even in the seasons that are not drawn from her book, because her book really correlates to the plot of season one, and then the rest of it is just right. made up. Right. Um, but even in the made up parts, like there are a lot of wild things in there that have happened at some point in a woman's prison. Mm-hmm. They're just, you know, it's it's not that sort of constant drama. In right. between, there's these just long periods of boredom. There's, you know sitting on a bench for two hours waiting for, you know, the psychiatrist to show up. There's four hours sitting chained in a back room waiting for the prison bus. You know, there's just sort of all this time of standing, you know, for an hour while guards count you again and again. Um, And that amount of sort of downtime and boredom and wasted hours and days and lives is something that is a reality of prison that doesn't translate well to TV. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Well, for obvious reasons, because just yeah. watching people <laughs> standing around. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, you said you were sentenced to 2.5 years, and you got transferred from jail to prison, and you wrote about your first night there when you overheard two guards talking and realized the world you were in. So can you tell us more about what they said and what it meant about the world of prison? Yeah, sure. So um, my first night in prison after you know 10 months in the county jail my Mm -hmm. first night in prison um obviously sounds like it would be you know scary and awful and it was it was pretty uneventful Mm -hmm. it was um maybe eight or ten of us uh newbies we were waiting to be transferred to a different prison the next day where they would do um what was called reception and classification Mm -hmm. um but we had one night at this you know other prison that was on the way and um we ended up sort of just we had nothing. We didn't have like TV. We didn't have, you know, property. Like we didn't have anything to do. We ended up just sitting around and sort of playing cards and talking and staring out the windows until like, I don't know, two or three in the morning. Um, and that was it. It was like, you know, not what you'd think for your first night in prison. Mm-hmm. But then in the morning, you know, they get us up um, at the ass crack of dawn to 
go wait for the prison bus to take us to the maximum security prison where we would get classified and um, told where we're going in the long term. And as we were waiting, um, I remember overhearing two guards talking about um, what was going on in SHU, in the solitary confinement area. And there was a woman in there who had um, taken a shit on a mess hall tray and pushed it back out the slot at the wow. guard. And I don't know if she was, you know, having a mental break. I don't know right. if she was just being a bitch. I don't know if yeah. she'd already had mental illness. Like, I have no idea what the background of that happening was. Um, but in response, the guards turned off the water to her cell. Oh. And um, these guards that were standing there talking around us had, you know, had had heard of this or had been there. And the, they were just sort of gossiping about it. And the one said to the other, um, well, you know, geez, what's she, what's she going to drink? And the other one responded, well, she can just drink out of the toilet. If it's good enough for my dog, it's good enough for her. Wow. And um, I, that, was, that was shocking to me. It has stuck with me so much because it, it says so much about how, to me, it says so much about how in prison mm-hmm. there are, you know, no rules. Mm-hmm. Like we think of prison as a place where there are all these rules. Right, yeah. Um, but, you know, the reality is that when it matters, there's, um, there's no one to make you know there's there's no one to make sure that there are rules to protect you yeah yeah i mean let me ask you this too when you first go to jail or when you first went to prison or whatever your first experience in a new place did you feel that the other women um did you feel frightened of them did they did they seem angry are they friendly what was that experience for you I mean, most of them were just, just seem like normal people, hmm. many of whom have not had um, a lot of opportunities in life. There's mm-hmm. definitely a higher um, rate of, of mental illness and um, intellectual disability. Um, but, you know, most of them just seemed normal. Um, I mean, many of them are coming off of drugs or have long mm-hmm. histories of drug use. Um but, you know, there, I, I think this sort of idea of, of prisoners as being, you know, hardened and, and frightening was not what I would typically encounter. I mean, there were people that were like that. Like, there definitely, um, there definitely were people that you would be scared of or that mm-hmm. you would not turn your back on. Um, but that, that was not your average person that I met in women's prison. And now I'm trying to remember, I read something that you were saying um, there was something to be feared in prison, but wasn't what you exactly expect um, that you would fear. And I think what you were saying is like you were you were afraid you were going to um, lo- like lose touch. If, if, correct me if I'm wrong here, but, you know, like losing touch with who you are or something like that or what just that the, like when we when I think of going to prison. What scares me is what will the guards do to me? What will other inmates do to me? Um, am I going to be treated terribly by other people? Is is that your main fear in prison or is it something else? I mean, I think that these are a lot of the fears. I think um, not so much the what will other prisoners do to you. Um, that was not something that was a sort of typical overriding fear. Like right. there were certainly instances where you know there would be some crazy fights but it was not the case that you would just sort of be walking around and randomly attacked or whatever like that didn't really happen in women's prison Mm -hmm. um i think you know the thing that i was sort of most constantly anxious about was um you know the possibility of being put in solitary Mm um because it wasn't just the solitary which is i think far worse than Mm -hmm. people would anticipate but it's also that with that means that you're you know you're going to lose access to your family you're probably going to lose good time you're probably going to do more time in prison and there's no sort of due process here i mean in theory there is in theory Mm -hmm. there is in any sort of prison disciplinary system in theory there's some sort of you know appeals mechanism Mm -hmm. or you know minimum standard of evidence or whatever there's some sort of due process but in fact it does not exist um you know and so that means that you have situations where staff can just sort of with impunity, like 
put you in solitary. They can say you did something that you didn't, or um, they can, wow. you know, put you in solitary for very minor things. Yeah. Um, I've seen women get sent to solitary for wearing pajamas too late in the day or oh for having God. two pairs of earrings when they were only allowed to have one, um, for having too many towels, um, for, you know, um, talking back for mm-hmm. altering their clothes, like all sorts of very trivial things. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the possibility of, of winding up in solitary and ending up spending longer in prison, you know, maybe even for something you didn't do mm-hmm. is terrifying. Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, cause one of the many, many stark moments in your book is when you describe solitary confinement, it sounds like torture. So can you describe what that was like for us? Yeah. I mean, I think before I went into solitary, I'm, I might've thought that solitary was just sort of like spending time alone. And, um, a lot of people tell me, Oh, I don't think I'd mind solitary. I like spending time alone, but you know, solitary does not feel like spending time alone. It right. felt, um, more like getting buried alive in some ways. And, um, you know, I think that part of that is because of the way that it sort of fundamentally undermines some of the key pieces of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of how we define ourselves as people is in relation to other people, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like self versus other, like mm-hmm. we exist in relation to other humans. Um, and that's part of how we define self. And then I think another big part of it is the actions we take the decisions we make the agency that we have Mm -hmm. and solitary takes away both of those things like it really takes away your ability to have relationships with other people to interact with others and it really um it it maybe doesn't totally eliminate but it you know significantly undermines your ability to have agency and take actions and make decisions Mm -hmm. and i think that when those two fundamental aspects of being human both simultaneously vanish it's incredibly um dehumanizing and disorienting wow what what's the longest time you are in solitary only a few days i mean only a few days there are people that i um interview now as a reporter you know i i interview you know people on death row because i cover the death penalty um there are people i interview who have been in solitary for decades Oh my God. I can't even, I mean, that's cruel and unusual. Oh Um, my God. Yeah. In in many countries it would be. So, and I just want to ask you, it it might seem silly, but you did in the book mention um, the food and you described that cereal was probably the most decent meal. um, And then lunch was kind of like the hot meal. And I, I think you said it was like meat and gravy or something like that. I don't remember. And then dinner was like a, a lukewarm soup and a sandwich and maybe some fruit. So the experience of food there, was it all awful? Outside of the cereal, was it just disgusting? I mean, was it bearable? How would you describe it? Um, it was, you know, it was okay. okay. Um, some of it was, was terrible. Um, some of it was okay. Um, but you know, we, we were lucky in that I don't recall getting served moldy food. Mm-hmm. I can only recall a couple instances in which bugs crawled out. Um, and, you know, now I cover prisons in Texas. And wow. over the course of the, the pandemic, more and more people have gotten access to contraband phones. So I've been able to publish more and more photos of wow. what the food looks like. And southern prison food is just – a it's a whole other thing. Um, much of it is not identifiable. You know, some of the, some of the pictures I've been sent, you know, it's, there's, it'll be like an entire meal will be like a handful of prunes and, you know, two, two sandwiches that have something that looks like, you know, diarrhea on them. It's not even identifiable like what the sandwich is. There's, you know, some images of moldy bread. Um, one particularly, um, wild meal was, um, a hot dog with no bun, a tortilla, and a whole uncooked potato. Oh my god! And that was served in a as a bag lunch during lockdown. So it's not like these guys, you know, it's not like these guys were going to get out and be able yeah. to go cook that potato. Um, and Jesus. I mean, that is, I you know, nobody loved the food in prison where right. I was, but it, it wasn't, you know, a main topic of conversation. Right. And 
just the fact that it was not a main topic of conversation I think is reflective of how lucky we were right. compared to some of these other prisons I've since reported on. Wow. Um, so yeah, so you got out of prison in 2012 and now you're a reporter in Texas and it's, you know, a state not known for good prison conditions. What are some of those things that you reported on that surprised you? Um, well, you know, I mean, I think, like I said, the, the food, but, yeah. um, one of the one of the first things that surprised me was when I started covering prisons here, um, or actually when I started covering death row, um, I I heard that all the guys on death row who didn't have teeth were going to get dentures, and I was shocked by this because I was like, wait a minute, they weren't giving them dentures before? Yeah. Because where I did time in New York, like if people didn't have teeth, they could get dentures, and it never occurred to me that a state would just sort of routinely deny people an entire body part. Um, and so I made some calls and I started investigating and it turned out that no, they were not giving them dentures. Um, and yes, it was routine that they would not give people dentures, not just on death row, but you know, across the entire prison population, which at that point was around 145,000 people, um, in Texas prisons. And, um, you know, I also, in the course of investigating it, found out that, instead of giving people teeth, what they decided to do was they would take a regular mess hall meal, put it in a blender, puree it, pour it in a cup Ugh. and serve it to you that way. And they called that a blended diet. Oh and um, when I interviewed one of the medical directors, he said that they, that they were doing that because they had come up with a better solution than the chewing and mastication process. Um, oh my God. And um, I spent about 11 months investigating that and ended up publishing a story in, I guess, 2018 and 19, and um, that really, uh, it really irked one particular state lawmaker who then pushed the prison system to do better. And the, uh, and, you know, the Department of Criminal Justice ended up buying a 3D printer so that they could 3D print dentures on site. Wow. That's amazing. And, you know, going back to what you're saying, both sides aren't the same and also you know, sometimes just one person, I mean, granted you're a journalist, but, and you have a good platform, but your effort made the difference in so many people's lives and it irked that one lawmaker. So I just, I really want to emphasize that to everyone listening, how important one person, what role we can play. Um, that's an amazing story and we all have individual power. And sometimes, like I said, you've got a platform in which to, you know, tell everyone, hey, this is going on, and not everyone has that platform, but that shouldn't, you know, I think that does prove that we can make a difference when we make the effort, and you're making the effort, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for, that you're doing it, and I'm so, I'm just so amazed by your story. It's so fascinating. Um, let's see. Um, I wanted to know when, when you were when you were doing time, um, did you feel confident that you were going to get out early or, or on schedule, or were you concerned because you mentioned the thing about solitary and you know maybe getting more time? Did you have or any or did you feel fairly confident that you were going to be able to get out and then in the time frame that you figured early or on time? And then how did that play in your head while you were there? So. I, um, the type of sentence that I had, it was pretty certain that I would get out, um, at five sevenths of my sentence. Okay. I did not have to go in front of the parole board for a subjective decision mm -hmm. because I think those are the scenarios that are sort of the hardest to deal with. And in New York, that was like, if you had a sentence that was like one and a quarter to four, if you had something where there was a range then you would go in front of the parole board and they would make a decision. Um, I had what's called a flat bid. So I had just two and a half and on a flat bid, like you get what's called conditional release at um, five sevenths of the time. So okay. as long as you don't like refuse to participate in your assigned programs and you know, you don't do anything like wildly fucked up, you know, you'll, you'll get out at that point. So, okay. you know, I, I was, um, I, I was relatively clear that I was going to get out then, um, but that was not the most common kind of sentence. So hmm. for a lot of people, um, you know, minor disciplinaries could have a huge impact on the rest of their lives. Hmm. Wow. Fascinating. Um, 
So even after everything you had survived and after everything you had reported on, you said the first year of the pandemic taught you more about the casual cruelty of prisons than the 10 years before. So how, how so? So, um, and I, I kind of hinted at this before, but it was because during the pandemic, um, like I said, a lot more people had access to contraband phones, but they also had gotten to a point where they were so desperate about these months-long lockdowns and the fear of dying in prison mm -hmm. and, you know, the deteriorating conditions as, um, you know, as they became more and more understaffed at some of these units. And so people started reaching out to reporters more and they started, mm. you know, going on TikTok and posting live streams on Facebook. And um, I, I ended up getting a lot more um, visual access to prisons that I had not been able to before. Um, and you know, obviously I'd seen what the inside of New York women's prisons looks like, but um, that is very different from what the inside of, you know, a Southern prison, a Southern men's max mm -hmm. looks like during a pandemic, for instance. And I, I was able to actually see these things and publish them. And, you know, some of them were shocking. Um, I, I've written a couple times about how um, in, in some Texas prisons, one of the things that guys will do to get the attention of higher ranking officials is to start fires hmm. in the units. Mm -hmm. So like if they can't get out for a shower because there's not enough guards and they're on lockdown and the guards just don't take them out for showers for days, um, then sometimes they'll start a fire and toss it out into the tier and um, hope that that means that, you know, a major or somebody higher ranking will come and put the fire out. And part of the reason this is possible is because many of these units have not had functional fire alarms for mm -hmm, a decade or mm -hmm. more. Um, but recently, um, last year, uh, one person died, and then this year another person died in cell fires uh, wow. that, you know, they'd started and then the staff did not actually respond. And um, I... I'm not sure if I would have believed how common it was for fires to be occurring in prisons as just a means of signaling distress. Mm -hmm. If it weren't for the fact that, you know, for months I'd been getting um, access to videos that I could see hours of these fires just burning unchecked in common areas. Jeez. That's crazy. I mean, I would imagine that, you know, these fires are making the air for even the guards very uncomfortable, but they would just ignore it. Yeah. And you can hear in some of the videos, you can hear the guys screaming, we can't breathe. We can't breathe. Oh my um, God. yeah, it's, it's shocking. Like this is not something I would have seen in right. a New York prison because aside from the fact that I don't think women would tend to use that as a tool to, mm -hmm. you know, signal distress as mm -hmm. easily. Um, you know, there also would have been working fire alarms. Right. Yeah. Jeez. God. All right. So the last question I have is, you know, right now there's all kinds of conversation about books getting banned in school libraries, especially in the South. So I just wanted to know, have pri prisons been similarly been banning books and have they banned yours? Um, so prisons have always banned books, <laughs> but, um, in a very different way, and it's kind of interesting that it doesn't seem to correlate to some of the, you know, critical race theory and right. LGBT-related bans that you see in schools. Like, I haven't seen any sort of equivalent shift like that in prisons. They've just always banned books in, frankly, way fucking weirder ways. <laughs> um, like, I actually didn't have problems in New York. I Every book I ever had sent in, I got. Mm -hmm. um, I do know that Heather Ann Thompson's book about Attica, which is a Pulitzer-winning book, has been banned, and she's mm -hmm. suing over that. But, you know, other states are very different. Um, Michigan, for instance, bans um, Dungeons & Dragons books wow. as a security threat. Um, <laughs> and Texas has a 9,000 book banned book list, and that includes things like The Color Purple and The Body Keeps the Score and some Charlie Brown books and oh some Ida B. Wells, which is banned wow. because of um, racial content. Yeah. Um, but yet, you know, Mein Kampf is, is still allowed. Wow. Um, and, you know, California also has a very large banned books list, as does Florida. And then there's some states that are much more reasonable. Um, you know, Colorado, for instance, um, about half of states don't actually officially have banned book lists. And 
they, you know, instead sort of evaluate it on a case by case basis. But yeah, it's, it's, it's really kind of um, scattershot. And it, it really says a lot about the individual prison system, mm -hmm. what sorts of books they're banning or not banning, and which states, you know, the states that have, when you look at the banned books list, you can see that it might look overtly racist are sort of the states that you might expect that to be the case. Mm -hmm. um, but my book has not currently been banned anywhere that I'm aware of yet. Um, it's been getting into New York. I've, I've heard from people there who've gotten it. It's um, been getting in in Texas. Um, I've heard people there that have gotten it, but so far it's only out in hardcover. So um, there are many states that don't allow hardcover. So mm -hmm. as of now, um, I don't have a full picture, but when it comes out in soft cover, I think um, it'll be interesting to see if any of those states ban it. I mean, yeah. I, I feel like I, it might be, Michigan might view it as more dangerous than Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, your experience is just ever so fascinating and I'm really grateful for you. Not only that you wrote about it, so you know, we can read it and have a really deeper understanding of what's going on, but that you're reporting on it and um, what you're doing is fantastic. Again, a fantastic writer. Everybody needs to get this book. Please listen to me. Get corrections and ink. I don't like usually gush over books like this, but I'm oh, like so sincere. It's such a good book. Um, so before I release you, haha, um, why don't you tell people where to get your book and where to find you? Um, yeah, I mean, you can, there's a correctionsandinkbook.com. Um, and obviously it's on Amazon and, you know, Barnes and Noble Everywhere, and any other yeah. places you want to get books. Um, and I am on Twitter at Carrie Block, E-E-R-I-B-L-A. And if you're into TikTok, I am on there as well. Awesome. So then I am author Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y. Don't forget the extra E. My books are also on Amazon. Carrie, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right. You take care.